Hello and welcome to the Scottish Liberty Podcast, episode 20. I'm Anthony Samrock. And I'm Tom Laird. It's the 27th of October, 2016. And we have a very special guest on the show today, Fred Sly from the Oregon Prison Project. This is something that's been of extraordinary interest to me and I'm really excited to have you on the show, Fred. Thank you for coming along. Well, well, thank you for inviting me. I'm really pleased to be here. So could you please start by telling us a little bit about your background and explaining what the Oregon Prison Project is? Yes, I'd be glad to. Um, so I have a doctorate in psychology, and um, what brought me to that was uh, in 1999, I discovered that many of the ways I was thinking about the world and relationships in the world were simply false. What I was telling myself is that relationship was always difficult. It was always going to be conflictual. There was always going to be struggle. And I discovered that was just a story I was telling myself and that there was a, a method and a consciousness I could use to create cooperative and uh, peaceful relationships. And that method was called nonviolent communication. Wow. And you know, with the moment I discovered that, it was really exciting for me. I just decided, well... I'd learned thousands of things in my life by that time, and I was just going to learn this. And so I threw myself into taking classes and eventually teaching classes. And one result was that I was invited to teach in San Quentin Prison in California. San Quentin is a San Francisco Bay Area prison. It was the oldest prison in the yeah. California prison system. Yeah. Made famous Quite by f- Johnny Cash, of course. <laughs> oh, yes, of course. He sang at Folsom. He sang at San Quentin as well, right? Okay. Yeah. And so uh, in 2002, I was invited because uh, I was part of a leadership program at that time. I was uh, intensely learning how to teach nonviolent communication and to live the consciousness. I was invited to teach in San Quentin, and we organized a project, four or five of us there, that's still running today, that ended up offering four classes weekly in San Quentin. There were 14 or 15 volunteers doing that. And I was deeply touched by how people calmed down when they were in our classes. And it was during a particular time in our curriculum when we were mostly emphasizing empathy training and the building of empathy within people, that people began to calm down. And I got very curious about that. So part of that curiosity took me into my doctoral program. And um, in 2008, I moved to uh, Portland, Oregon to be with my family, my grandchildren here. And I wasn't here very long before the phone rang and offered me a chance to teach in Oregon prisons. And so, again, we started a project here. And now I have 30 volunteers teaching in five uh, Oregon adult facilities and uh, two Oregon Youth Authority facilities and three different post-relief programs. And the outcome is still the same. When people go through our program, our program's a year long, when they go through our program, they calm down. And from that place of calm, they report being able to make different decisions in their life. And they also report that their social relationships have expanded. They're able to be back in the lives of their families, see their children again, and have cooperative relationships with those around them. Uh, within the prison, the number of uh, behavioral concerns that they might have had have gone way down. They're not getting in the same kind of fights. There's 
okay. no are not so much arguing and those kinds of things are happening. So that, that's kind of how I got here. Okay. It seems from the way that you tell the story that it was remarkably easy for you to get into prisons. That um, surprises me. Is, was that the case or, or was it a challenge? And is there hunger for more of this in other prisons? Well, in California, there, it was a really profound time for California because San Francisco County Jail had put a program in place that had uh, reduced the incidence of reoffense in violent crimes by 82.6%. Now, that was so huge, right? Yeah. 82% reduction, right? That the California Department of Corrections simply could not ignore it. The outcry from right. the public was just, it was, this is 1996 there, and people are going, mm. what are we doing? If this is possible, right. why are we doing what we're doing, right? That program is still running. And so the state of California decided, all right, we're going to use San Quentin and we'll try to put something similar in place. So they contacted many, many organizations in the San Francisco Bay Area that at the time were offering some peacekeeping kinds of programs like yoga, uh, Buddhist meditations, mindfulness, uh, all of these different kinds mm. of things. And one of our nonviolent communications trainers had been a, a mindfulness practitioner for years, and they contacted the uh, nonviolent communication agency uh, known as Bay NBC, which they were the organization I was taking my training program through, and said, would you like to come and be part of this? And they said yes, and they had also just put in place their first cohort of teacher trainers. And so they contacted us and said, well, you are the people that might want to do this. Here's a population of people that would like training and they can be, you know, sort of a practicum for you for your teaching skills. And so the state of California gave clearances to 500 different people that do uh, peacekeeping kinds of trainings uh, to come into San Quentin prison or put together a program. Well, many of those programs are still there. Uh, ours is still there. And, when I got to Oregon, I was surprised, you know, uh, so that was a welcome there within San Quentin. That isn't true about the rest of the California system. It's it's much more of a struggle. Okay. And it was also a, a struggle in San Quentin as well. While there was a embracing from a certain part of the um, administration, other parts of the administration were not so welcoming. So it was kind of, you know, as we organized the um, program, it was kind of push and pull there. Okay. Sometimes we're welcome, sometimes we weren't. But when I got to Oregon, uh, I just got a phone call from a friend who said, uh, here's a chaplain in, a, in Oregon State Penitentiary, which is sort of equivalent to San Quentin. It's the oldest facility here in Oregon. And right. she would like, uh, she would like nonviolent communication to come to the prison. And uniformly after that, the Oregon prison system has opened its arms, right? Now it's not all it's not all perfect, but there's a big welcoming here. Uh, yes, I don't get much in the way of pushback at all. In okay. fact, I get sort of uniform uh, cooperation and welcoming. When you were in California, you talk about pushback. What were the roots of that? What What was the main problem that you feel that they they, they were skeptical about? And why? What's the difference in Oregon? Why you know why that difference in attitude towards this program? Well, I think overall there is an attitude about people who have been to prison that 
uh, creates discrimination that's on the same level of sexism and racism and all the other isms that keep people separated. I'm calling it criminalism, okay. right? which means that you're not quite human and you're probably a little bit dangerous just because you've been to prison. Now, it doesn't matter if you've been to prison for one of the most horrible crimes ever or a nonviolent drug bust, which most uh, countries in the world do not put people into prison for yeah. a nonviolent okay. drug bust. Right? Mm-hmm. But if you've been there for a nonviolent drug bust, and certainly in America, there's something wrong with you and you're dangerous. And there's, so they're, all okay. of a sudden, you're not seen as human anymore. Right. You're just a criminal, right? And so there's this fear. It's kind of a stranger danger that's involved with anybody that's that's been to prison. So uh, California is kind of a rich state in many ways, although that's changing. Right? Mm-hmm. It's got plenty of money to build prisons and pay correctional officers and do these kinds of things. So that attitude can linger, even though there might be a subset of the administration. Right. On July 1st, 2006, the California Department of Corrections became the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. And pretty much on the same day, they stripped out education and rehabilitation programs from the prison system. There's, wow. there's sort of a uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, the, the uh, two parts of the system, one of them that longs for rehabilitation and to see people as human, and one of them that is reacting uh, to these to this unknown dangerous monster that that sits out there. Okay. Now, Oregon is a poor state. Now, there isn't any fishing left or very little, enough to do subsistence for fishermen on the coast. Timbering is pretty much long since gone. uh, It's clear-cutting tiny, tiny trees now, and it's really not so much a viable industry anymore in our state. We don't have any money. Yeah. And if there are rehabilitation programs that can reduce the population of the prison or reduce the incidence of violent crime by 82.6%, then corrections and the, uh, is a very low-hanging fruit for saving money in the state. Right. If we can get people out of prisons, and so all of a sudden, the state of Oregon is seeing this as a way to balance its budget. Now, this isn't really uh, articulated clear thinking yet, but when I talk to anybody in the Department of Corrections, and they're all kind of, yeah, things are really challenging, and this isn't working very well. Okay. And this, this includes how correctional officers themselves are being affected. Working mm. in a prison is an extremely challenging and stressful job. If you tell yourself that everybody is out to get you and that you're all dangerous, your stress level is extremely high. And many, many people take that home. So uh, now in the United States, we've raised the retirement age to 67 here. Okay. What do you think the average age of death of a correctional officer that has served 20 years in security is? Uh, I would hazard a guess it'd be quite young, maybe in the 50s, late 50s. Yes, thank you. And that's quite accurate. It's 58 years old. Okay. That's Uh, the average age a person dies if they've spent 20 years in in corrections. Mm -hmm. The suicide rate among correctional officers is about triple of what it is for multi-deployment veterans. Right. 
So all of these things are horrible. Of course, then there's the heart disease and the obesity and, and uh, relational problems. Divorce rate, 72%. And all of these, these ills. Yeah. And so at one point, the head of the um, employees of the Correctional Officers Union and one of the chaplains came to me and said, you know, we're having a whole lot. We're all broken hearted by uh, the number of suicides we're having. It was the third one that year, right? Okay. And there were five that, and there were five that year. We see the people graduating from your program as changing their behavior and calming down and being able to make different choices and just generally being healthier in their lives. Can you put together something for us for correctional officers? Right. Uh, so, yeah. So we didn't have a program like that that would address uh, health issues. You know, we were we were doing relational and choice issues. That's sort of the the content of uh, nonviolent communication. One of them, we can talk more about that. Right. But we knew someone who was teaching correctional officers mindfulness-based stress reduction. Nonviolent communication is very much a mindfulness practice on its own. So we just called this person up. His name's Fleet Mall. He has the uh, Prison Mindfulness Institute. We invited him out, and now this is our fourth year of offering mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, called mindfulness, mindfulness-based wellness and resiliency within the Oregon prison system to correctional officers. And as a result, there's calming and more peace and a report in increased health and uh, a report of an increasing cooperativity in the employees in the uh, uh, Oregon Department of Corrections. And so, okay. While this is new and, you know, it's kind of mindfulness, ooh, isn't that some Eastern mysticism? Yeah, could you just uh, explain for maybe some of our podcast listeners who don't know the exact meaning of the term, what you mean by mindfulness? Well, does any of you uh, have things that you do that if you don't pay a lot of attention to them will hurt you? Um, not not immediately. No, not, 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 okay. Well, I mean, so you for, could get... Yeah, for um, me- Get burnt yeah. cooking, even. Yeah, I suppose so, yeah. In the well, kitchen. Well, like dri- yeah. driving a car or yeah, driving sure. a motorcycle or a scooter, right? Yeah, For go many, ahead. many years, I was a builder, and I had cabinet shops and a furniture company, and I had table saws, and I still have all ten of my fingers. And so mindfulness is the quality of attention that you pay where you're right. completely present, where... For me, with uh, in my cabinet shop on my table saw, I could see all ten of my fingers. I could see the grain in the board, uh, noticing when the board might want to take over where it was going through the saw. I could see the fence uh, that the board was running against, and okay. I could see the blade. Right. This so it's a quality of attention you bring to your life. Right. That's a quality, and you expand that attention. For me. Not just my fingers and the blade and the saw, but to everything that's going on inside of me as a human. Right? So, yeah. what kind of thinking do I have, and what is my feeling telling feelings telling me, and how's my body right now? So, it's a quality of simply observing, and this is way older than Eastern mysticism. Yeah, this is like a class of humanity 101. How is it? What can you do to improve your life? And the easiest answer to that is to pay direct attention to it. Well, you know, right now in the United States, right, there's a lot of fear running around. And fear messages tend to 
get people jacked up and reactive when they're yeah. not making considered decisions, right? Mm-hmm. And mindfulness simply enables you to have more resiliency, more bounce back after things happen, and to be able to pay attention to the difference between the alarms you're getting inside because of the sort of continued message of threat. You know, it, it's like the sky is falling, the sky is falling, yeah. little kind of things, right? To pay attention to those messages. And then what is the truth of your life in the moment? Are you really a threat? Is this how you want to respond to your life? So it gives you the capacity to respond rather than react to things that goes on around you. And if anything is a underlying uh, capacity to create peace, it's mindfulness. And so it's it's nothing uh, amazing or well, it's amazing, but it's nothing different and mystical that requires years and years of sitting you know, on a cushion to accomplish. You can do this in any moment that you bring your attention to your life rather than to the reactions that you're having, sort of the bouncing and ping pong that you have. Yeah, right. Does that make sense to you now? Yeah, it makes sense. That makes sense. And, and what part does that have to play in the communication training that you give the inmates? Thank you, because... Um, there are ways that we use language that indicate that we are in a reactive place in our lives, right? that we have three parts of our brain. One of them is our own rep- old reptilian brain. It's, it's, uh, its structure is traceable from back to uh, reptiles. Right? And that part of your brain is responsible for uh, fighting and flight and, and running and freezing. Right. Your mammalian threat response lives there. Right. Well, that part of your brain only has one question. Am I safe? Yes or no? So it's a very polarized way to look at the world, right? Right. Now, now think about uh, language, right? Um, if, If one of you could do me the favor of telling me that what I'm telling you right now is stupid and doesn't make any sense, I'll use it as an example. Okay, that's that's stupid, and it sounds like horseshit to me. Why don't we even call you on the show? You're both wrong. It's okay. very sensical and very logical, and you just don't know what you're talking about. Right. Okay. Now, now right. Go ahead and come back. Come back again. Well, I mean, that's that's easy for you to say, Fred. You know, like who are you to say that to us? <laughs> well, I'll tell you who I am. I have a doctorate in psychology. I have five uh, academic degrees, and I've been doing this for years. Oh, so basically, you you're you're, oh, so you're smarter you just, than us. And, and you, yes, just, and you psychologists <laughs> just live in ivory towers. You're completely disconnected from the real world. And and the yeah, real well, world, you I, know. I have been into prison twice this week and got out the same day. You know, where have you? Where's your thing with the mean streets? You're sitting behind some. Of, so, so do you understand? <laughs> I, well, when, you know, when there's yeah. people out there suffering in the world that they're no fault of their own. Why are you going in and yeah. helping these scumbags when, you know, some people... <laughs> well, just notice the quality of conversation we're having. Right. Yeah. I, I call this right-wrong ping-pong. Yeah. Right? Okay. This, we're in this place where it's polarized. You're wrong or and I'm wrong. Or, or I'm, I'm thinking I'm right. You're telling me I'm wrong. And we're just going back and forth. We don't even know what we're talking about anymore. Right. Right. We're just right. playing right and wrong. Right? Okay. okay. Well, well, this kind of quality of interaction, and how familiar is this to you? Oh, very familiar. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a divorced guy. You know? 
And this is probably why. Yeah, well, exactly. And I'm sure it was all my fault. Yeah. No, oh, no. No, it's not your fault. You have learned to communicate it. It's a way you have learned. And it's not your natural language. Your natural language is a cooperative language. Humans are a threat if they're not connected. Humans need to be. So if you are a human being and you're out on the African felt by yourself at breakfast or, uh, you know, at oh, I already gave it away, right? Yeah. At dawn or dusk, what can we call you? Lunch? <laughs> oh, no, your breakfast or dinner. The big <laughs> eat in, in the morning and the evening and they sleep during the hot of the day, right? right? So at noon, you're fine, right? Right. But morning and evening, you could be somebody's meal, right? Yeah. Now, eight humans out there standing back to back with sticks, what do you think they are? Getting fed. <laughs> They're safe. That's a hunting party, right? You know, yeah, right. kitties look at that and go, whoa, whoa, I don't know what that is, man, but I'm not messing with it. It's too big for right. me. I'm a that's something weaker and sicker yeah. looking. Like yeah. domestic. So, so it has been an imperative for humans. Mm. The only way we manage to evolve is together in groups. So cooperation is hardwired into us everywhere. Our bodies are built for it. Our minds are plastic. That and it, they keep sort of changing to try to bring us closer and closer to connection. And it's one of the strongest. Uh, desires and longings that people have. And in this world where people are so disconnected, most people are lonely and depressed because they don't have the quality of social connections that they really need to be less anxious. Because if you are really well socially connected, mm. you are calm. You are calm. If you are not, you are terrified. And there's a, a way that we have this sort of normative anxiety that runs behind us all the time that we're trying to medicate and handle, right? So, this is just part and parcel of what's true for us. And if you're a minorly anxious, you're back on that reptilian brain. And so the way you see the world is polarized. Yes, no, black, white, right, wrong, right? All right. of that is just comes forward, right? There's a part of your brain the, the, uh, called your prefrontal cortex, which is there are uh, the cooperative part of your brain. You want to be able to live in there, but in order to live in there, you've got to be calm because uh, threat response, uh, oh, sorry to say it like this, threat response trumps, right? It takes charge. Right. It takes over, right? Okay. Right. And, and you can take charge back, right? Yeah. But in order to do that, you've got to bring attention and mindfulness. Right. To, okay. You know, to look at it and assess it, right? Right. So it's, it's so easy to fall into that reactive part. So nonviolent communication invites people to examine how they are right in every moment, you know. And so this is why it's a, a mindfulness practice. How am I? What's going on inside of me moment by moment? And what does the way I'm using my language reflect about how I am? Right. right. So if, if I'm doing the right, wrong ping pong, I, got, I, I can simply stop and say, wait. This represents me being activated. I'm afraid right now. I'm telling myself that there's a threat. And in order to connect and make a relationship with this person, I need to calm down. So for me now, the vast majority of times, I can I can notice things. And then just take a couple of really deep breaths into my belly, calm down. It brings me into a different part of my brain. And also, there are many other techniques that you can use to calm yourself right. and bring you into a cooperative possibility. 
So nonviolent communication first asks people to notice where they are in the world and then acknowledge what's true for them, because this brings us back into our own space, back into our, our bodies, rather than you are my oppressors, you are, you know, you're wrong, you're, you know, mm-hmm. like, like all this. It's like, God, I'm, I'm a little anxious right now. I'm, I'm feeling uh, worried, you know. I, I need to have some assurance that I'm safe. Right. This brings back inside of myself. Right? And then it comes down to, well, we've got this thing going on between us. What do you imagine we could do that would work for both of us? Right. It, it allows the cooperative possibility to simply emerge. It's a, uh, I love this tool for that. It's simple. It's straightforward. It's accessible. It's not necessarily easy to learn because it, it's, you're sort of learning how to defuse and, and uh, get into cooperative relationship with your reactive parts. Yeah. And there can be really compelling, you know, like, so I'm a veteran. I've had maybe, uh, 300 times a day of being sort of activated in messages that I'm at risk. Right. And when I back over my life since I got out of the service, right. I can think of about five times in my life where I was actually uh, at risk. Right? Okay. And so the odds are pretty damn small, you know, right? Yeah. They're, yeah. they're like out on the freeway in your car, right? These are the worst possible times, right? Yeah. Right. And I had a motorcycle for years and I uh, surfed for years and I scuba dive uh, and raft rivers. And all, with all of that possibility, still five times I could say that maybe there's, there was an actual threat in my life. And never when I'm in prison. I'm at more risk when I'm driving back and forth to the prison than I ever am inside. So. OK. And what, what categories of prisoner are we talking about here? Are we running the whole gamut here? Are we talking uh, first-time offenders all the way through to extremely violent criminals? Yes. Th- so our program will train anybody that is allowed by the prison to walk into the room. Okay. Now, that includes some, some people who have had some pretty horrending, horrendous things that have happened to them and that they were engaged in. Right? Yeah. Uh, things that we would call just plain horrible. Right? And... It also means that the prison system has assessed that their security risk is small enough that they can attend classes. Right. And this is something that's over a period of time, right? Okay. So there, there are people that we will never see. Right. right. There are people that are in mental health segregation because the challenges in their life has led them to be less connected to their surroundings than we are. They're more okay. connected to their active stories than they are to what's present in front of them. So our program could probably support those people in having a different life. It might take longer right. than, than anybody would, would want to. You know, I mean, I worked for community mental health for years. I, I understand what it takes for a person to be able to shift. Mm-hmm. And what kind of patience is required with some people, depending on the depths of their wounds. Right. You can't, mm-hmm. you can't tell person to person, right? It's totally an individual thing. Okay. And we are simply not engaging that. We are engaging those folks that the prison system says uh, they have behaved well enough that we right. can trust that they that they can attend a class. Sure. Okay. So, and and is it is the the program completely voluntary on both sides? I it's voluntary in terms of the prisons they, they attend these these this program on a voluntary basis, and are the the people who teach it is it, is it, is it all voluntary? All of the teaching staff is volunteer. Okay. Sometimes, I see. Uh, 
people in prison have something called a counselor and you can't, it's not a mental health person. Yeah. It's more like a case manager. Yeah. And sometimes people's case managers will say, oh, okay, you're going to go take the, the nonviolent communication class. Well, to them, it means that they have been told that they had to. Yeah, exactly. Although, right. if you take my our classes, we are in parts, we are sponsored by like uh, religious services or life skills. If you don't pass our class, that doesn't result in you getting a behavioral charge. Wow, right, okay. Good. It doesn't, no, no one ever uh, is punished or penalized for not completing our class, right? Right. Some some people who come think they are, right? Okay. But it's, but it's not the case, and they think uh, that they'll be persecuted in some way by their counselors if they've been told to take the class. Now, about half of those stay and then later on report, well, I'm glad I did, but, you know, I didn't like the fact, you know. Right. But, uh, you know, That's because correct. they start to recognize um, what does it mean when you're telling yourself you don't have a choice? Right. Mm. Right. What does yeah. it mean if you tell yourself you don't have a choice? That's in the category of right, wrong, ping pong. Because right. I can simply tell you, yes, you do. And you can say, no, I don't. And then we are in this polarized territory. So okay. the awareness required to notice that you are in sort of your reptilian brain and your mammalian threat response, that takes about a third or to half of our class to show to get people aware of all of the symptoms of being in a reactive place. Right. Well, it sounds like I'd like to take this class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm even thinking well, about I, it myself. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of maybe going to Oregon and committing some crimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might, the, the, one of the, the biggest horrors in Oregon prisons is that uh, it, the inmates are, are the most uh, upset about is that you get the stalks of the broccoli, but not the, the tops. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. And this is a cause, this is a, this is a, a cause of consternation. This is it. And, and what a, uh, delightful example of, to use, to yeah. point to us how we're affected by this. What does it mm. mean to us when the prison system serves us for lunch, the stalks of broccoli, but not the tops? <laughs> And right. the, the vast majority of the responses people have is that they don't think we're human. They don't think we deserve a place at the table, right? Right, right. And remember that the primitive terror level response, right, to believe that you've been excluded because, mm. you know, to be banished is the worst punishment a human can go through, right? Okay. Because it's terror. Hey, if you're banished from the tribe, you are dinner or breakfast for something, right? Because you're not, you're no longer, you're by yourself again. Right. And right. that, you know, I suppose it depends on your personality to, to a certain degree, Fred. I know that when I was a kid, I was completely uh, bamboozled, but I would watch TV programs and American TV programs. And like at some point, a parent would say to a kid, go to your room, you know, and uh, I would like say to my dad, you know, what's what's that all about? You know, what's going on there? Why is, why is he getting sent and say, oh, that my dad would say, He'd kind of put his paper down, look at it, and say, "Well, that's the middle class's idea of a punishment, son." You know, and I, I, I never really got that because I couldn't think of anything better than being sent to my room. My toys were in my room, my books were in my room. I didn't have to put up with my annoying little brother, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. 
it's, it's not, you know, it could be the same thing as go to Disneyland, right? Right. It's, it's that you don't have choice. Right. Okay. Right? And choice is so important for us because if we don't have choice, there are many, many people who have had horrible things that have happened to them. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And part of it was that they didn't have choice. These things were imposed on them. You know, think about rape and murder and all yeah. of these things. These are outside things that are imp- imposed on you. So there's preconditioning to to uh, any perception of not having choice. Mm, yeah. That this is a danger sign. Like something horrible can happen to me. Right. Yeah. And so there's a lot of organizational building exercises that are right. trust building exercises. Right. Right. You know, the, the person falling over backwards with their hands over their eyes. Yeah, you know, yeah. That people, that's some way to sort of relieve the body and give them the impression that you can have cooperative relationships. Because, like I said, people are walking around anxious mm. all the time, right? Yeah. Telling themselves that they're out of control, that, that things are a mess. Nobody's nobody's at the wheel of the, of the ship, and here comes the iceberg and yeah, you know, yeah. what's happened, right? This is, and, in the, and in this case... You know, with global warming, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, a lot of this is true. Right? Mm-hmm. That, that there are things out there that would suggest that we're all deeply at risk, right? Right. Did you find, do you find rather, that then the prisoners that are asked to go there by the counselor are less engaged because they don't have a choice? And do the people who are really engaged tend to be the people who volunteered, or is it unpredictable? Well, um, yes, at least initially. Right. Mm. The people that come in uh, because they chose to be there, they put their name on the list, right? They did all of that. Seem to be a little bit calmer when they come in the room than the people who have been voluntold, right? They, right. They, yeah. They've been told, you know, because like I, you know, I'm just mad, right? Yeah. Mm. However, those messages are among the first things that we work for. You know, we work with that stuff, right? So. The way that the volunteers and the, and the trainers in the class do it is to bring a person's reactive expressions back into what their truth is. Right? And so someone might say, you know, like, well, I, you know, I don't know why, why I'm in this class. You know, I would I was told my counselor, uh, my counselor told me I had to be here, you know, and it's just, you know, I don't want to be here. Right. Right. And so I'll say something to them or other volunteers that do the same thing. Well, it sounds like you'd really like choice in your life. And it, it kind of sucks that you have to uh, that you're here now. You want to be able to do something else with your time. Right. And you know, you know what the person will say? Yeah. What, what? Yeah. Yeah. That's what's going on, man. I'm pissed. Right. I don't want to, be <laughs> yeah. able to use my time. Yeah. This is what's true for me. Right. Yeah. And just in that moment, this is what's true for me. That lands in them. As a as a a, a a realization of what is is their truth in the moment or how they are in this moment, and everybody's body wants that. Right. How right. am I right now? Not what I'm telling myself is going on. I right. calm down when I'm in connect, connection with my genuine in the moment truth. Okay. And I feel connected because someone else is there witnessing my truth. So what happens to those folks is. Is, you know, after about six weeks or eight weeks, they start saying things like, well, I didn't want to be here, but I'm glad I'm here now. You know, I, right. I, had, a phone call, I had a phone call with my wife and I did that that thing that you do. And, uh, you know, uh, it, right. we didn't end up arguing. Right. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that kind of leads into the, the, the question. Because we're going to say, let's get down to cases in terms of, first of all, how you measure success. 
in, in these situations and you know how successful is it uh, and when I'm talking about success okay reoffending what's what's reoffending like for people who have went through these these courses yeah do, how, how do you measure success just from the uh, start yeah well I chose not to do research okay um, on our program and and why is I wrote my I wrote my doctoral dissertation on uh Empathy and violence, and why men are are ninety seven percent of the people in prison, right? Right. And while studying that, I came on study after study after study that said any time you teach people empathy, any time you do that, right? Okay. Aggression goes down, prosocial behavior goes up, and the studies that I end up running into were these huge studies that were studies of studies, and so right. involved in this were. Thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people across all sorts of contexts, right? Yeah. And including that study I cited about the reduction in, of, violent, of recidivism and violent crime, right? that was an empathy teaching program, right? Okay, um, right. So at some point I realized, I, like, people are calming down in my classes. I don't have to wonder what is going on mm -hmm. here, right? Mm -hmm. They're learning empathy. They are calming down as a result of this, right? Other studies show the re, uh, and, and then there was a tiny study done with parolees that showed that even eight hours of nonviolent communication training, somebody will have a significant change in their empathic capacity on a psychological test, right? There's a, there's a significant right. change there. They didn't measure it out over time. You know, this was just after the eight hours they took a, you yeah. know, it, they did a pre and post. They did tested at the beginning and tested at the end, and there was a significant change. Yeah. So for me, I decided just not to do that because then I would need to be involved with the university and spend a lot of resources to, for me, recreate the wheel. Yeah. Right. So what I spent time doing was getting ever better at teaching empathy. And um, there's a new discipline out there. It's not horribly new, but it's called interpersonal neurobiology. Right which shows in brain structure what happens when people receive empathy. Okay. Well, so we don't even have to wonder what's going on. The moment that that person understands that I care about their experience, like, right. yeah, yeah, it sounds like you really want to, you're pissed. You really want to choose how you use your time. Yes. Right. That moment, their brain is rewiring. That part of their brain that is social lights up in that moment. They have a, experience of connection, right? And we're all so hungry for that, right? I yeah. Mean, people walking around with their cell phones, texting, looking down, right? Mm -hmm. This is a drug, right? Yeah. By, by any description, this is uh, addictive behavior, right? Sure. Right. They're trying to create connection. Yeah. And they're doing it in a way that isn't satisfying. Mm -hmm. right? That's why they keep doing it over and over and over again, constantly going to my phone. You know, it's 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 totally addictive. Yeah, and it's quite ironic, you know, that we talk about our internet connection or uh, you know, yeah. before our wireless connection. Yeah, because it's not a connection, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, if you think about the speed of electronic information transfer, I got a gig out here, right? Mm -hmm. I got a gigabyte, right? This is, like, this is where, I, where I'm sitting. Yeah, 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 right? So yeah. It, my, my uh, uh, internet connection comes faster and the messages come off Google faster. But uh, if I want social connect, if I want my body calm, 
I'm going to go uh, hang out with some of my friends, right? This sort of direct thing is, you know, uh, we all can feel how we all are. We're hardwired. For yeah. Mm. That's in the vibe, you know, and it is so important for us to be in the face of that over and over again. There's an a American psychologist named Virginia Satir who talks about the, the deep importance of getting hugs, right? A hug is a physical contact that contains a smile, right? We need that about a dozen times a day just for our bodies to be calm. If we get it eight times a day, okay, that's, you know, four times a day is like bare minimum. It's like almost, you know, not enough to overcome the level of uh, um, upset and anxiety that we have, that we carry through our lives, yeah. right? But so, hey, a, a dozen hugs a day. It's yeah. probably a lot cheaper and has a hell of a lot less side effects than antidepressants. Right? Sure, sure. Uh, can I, I, I just want to ask a couple of things on, on the empathy thing. Um, so it's a kind of two-parter. One, I mean, it's been my experience. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a just brief resume. I mean, I, I spent some time. I was an infantryman at one time. I was also a, a, a prison guard at one time. I was a prison officer in a high-security yeah. high prison here in Scotland. So I know yeah. how stressful that can be. I only stuck it a year. I'd, I'd, I'd rather be an infantryman than, than, than be a prison guard. Um, but it, what my, my experience is that empathy sometimes doesn't necessarily breed empathy. You know, sometimes boundaries and kind of an example, a basic example, you know, when you're a kid, maybe you, you, you don't tidy up your room or you don't do something. Your dad says, hey, look, you know, um, when you do that, you know, you're, I suppose there's empathy in there in a, a certain degree. But it's like, look, you know, you're, you're getting punished because when you do this, when you don't tidy your room, your mum has to tidy it up and she's got enough problems. And that boundary setting sometimes can create empathy. And But the, also the other thing I was wanting to check with you is at what point, can an excess of empathy be crippling? I mean, I'm not sure. I don't know if I want policemen to be overly empathetic. I don't know if I want a surgeon to be empathetic. I don't know if I want a judge to be empathetic because they've got a job to do and maybe an excess of empathy might be crippling. I mean, even for a, a criminal, I suppose, uh, going back into a situation which can be incredibly violent, which can be incredibly stressful, Maybe an excess of empathy could maybe put him at a disadvantage. Do you know what I'm driving at here, Fred? Yes, I, yes, I absolutely under, understand what you're saying, and, and both of those examples you can use, I, I can address. Okay. Back to the back to the thing about hey, your pop coming in and calling you up because yeah. you know, uh, hey, you know, yeah. your mom uh, yeah. is working really hard and it's yeah. stressful for her yeah. to have to do this too. Yeah. So this this is a cry for empathy. Okay. Notice how your mother's being affected. Right. Right. Right? Okay. And, and so this is bringing you into connection. And so right. it, they're challenging the, the, the quality of that is a challenge to right. the quality to bring you to awareness and to bring you to present grounded awareness. Right. Right. And this, the same thing about the, the prison guards and the police and the judges, yeah. et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. I want them to understand your basic humanity. Right. I want to, them to see you as fully human. I don't want them judging you uh, that you're a criminal or a mess up or a drug addict or any of those things. I want them to see. I want them to come to you with full uh, presence. Right. right. And I also want them to come with a full awareness of what is required to build accountability inside of a person. Right? OK. People are wounded and wounded 
people will wound people to mm-hmm. sort of let them know how they've been hurt until that's been resolved inside of a person. We want to absolutely assess with great accuracy what is a human's capacity? What's their reactive capacity? What's their capacity okay. for presence in the moment? So accountability, I'm afraid, in the United States is one of the most unmet needs that we have. Right. People are simply flushing people off to, you know, there's a reason that prisons are put in the back of beyond, you know, way out in these rural areas, right? Right. Because we don't see them, so we, we can just maintain the story that they are uh, ridiculous monsters, right? You know, mm-hmm. harmful monsters, right? If you start seeing them face to face over and over and over again, you can't see the monster anymore, right? Right. And there's something that comes up that that you're just describing this danger of it being permissive. Right. Right, right. Compassion can come forward, you know, oh, I want to support you. Oh, I want to embrace you. Right. Without the accountability piece being built in there. So we really need to be able to assess people and see, we need two things that are essential, empathy and accountability and hand in hand. If we don't do that, we're setting ourselves up because you know what permissiveness does, right? Mm. You know, yeah, okay, uh, yeah, you're, everything's fine. Yeah, we'll just put you on the street. This is called blind trust, right? But blind trust isn't trust. Trust mm. is a capacity that's built up over time, yeah, and has history that's involved to it. Yeah, how absolutely. have you behaved? And if you've behaved really great in prison, there's no reason to think that you're going to behave really great on the outside. So we need to build in these transition programs where people are supported to make this cultural change. They're going through a huge cultural change. Yeah. Very tight of tight control and confinement. So let's just open the doors and there's no restrictions. What they haven't practiced in there, right? Yeah. They haven't practiced in. So they need somebody like like the fellow traveler program, I believe it's part of Norway when somebody gets incarcerated or in part of the uh I think from the moment they're arrested, they're assigned somebody called a fellow traveler. Right. Somebody that walks along with them and supports them through all of these different transitions, the transition into uh, sort of separated from society until we can build up trust that you can make different choices. And then all the programs and things you, that you right. would take to support you. Right? Right. So we, we've sort of lost the accountability. And, and of course, in the United States, the mass incarceration we have is simply a way to perpetuate slavery. If you yeah. get on Netflix and look at their new documentary called 13th, the 13th, right. it's about the 13th Amendment here and okay. how it basically perpetuated the slave state. And so it, it was really an economic move. It wasn't anything to do. Could you but, spell out for our podcast listeners the 13th Amendment, what, what that is exactly and how it affects what you're talking about? Basically, it abolished slavery. It said right. no person should be held slave except right. criminals. Right, okay. So it gave an out right. for slavery, right? Right. Oh, so so uh, we can uh, you know do whatever we want to with criminals. We can put them in prison. And then there was this huge, uh, shortly after that, there was this very leasing program that went into the 60s and 70s, where you would uh, businesses and plantations, the old plantations that had slaves, can now lease inmates right to right. work on the plantation, right? Yeah. So perpetuation of slavery. Right. And okay. This huge slave state we have 
Now, in California last year, there were many, many fires. You know, global warming has extended the hot season in California. The amount and intensity of the fires that are there are truly scary. I mean, okay. it's really, really scary, right? Now, uh, there were some, I can't remember the numbers, some like 6,000 or 7,000 firefighters fighting uh, those fires all over the state of California last year. Right. 54% of those are inmates that make $3 a day. Right. You know, a firefighter makes uh, uh, around $75,000 in a season. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So there's an economic uh, incentive. So yeah. it saves the state of California, right. which is becoming increasingly broke. So they have right. a huge vested interest right. in keeping people in prison. Right. Uh, right. That's terrible. That's, that's really uh, hugely terrible. There is no reason that a nonviolent drug offender should ever go to prison. No, I mean, no, we were no, pretty we, much on your side with that one. We, yeah. de- we definitely agree with <laughs> you. You could sign to the choir with the libertarians, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, really? Yeah. Yeah, well, $33,000 a year to, to incarcerate somebody. Yeah. Give me the $33,000 just once. <laughs> I'll take one year of $33,000. Yeah. I'll put them through two years of rehabilitation. Yeah. When they come out, the only reason they're using drugs anyway is because they're lonely and anxious and want to, they're self-medicating they for all this, yeah. this anxiety they have. And once they get a good, solid social network, they don't do that anymore. Yeah. Right. There's a wonderful book by a reporter named uh, Johan Hari. Uh, I believe he's English. Okay. And and it's called Chasing the Scream. Who who does he does a marvelous job of, of uh, uh, it's a very uh, scholastic piece. It's very uh, rigorously researched. Um, about exactly that, why people go to prison and what happens when you simply make, and this happened in England, incidentally, the, mm. uh, they, they, they made drugs legal in, I can't remember if it was uh, London, right. uh, one major city, they made drugs legal and fully uh, accessible. They simply set up clinics that if you wanted to use heroin, you could come in there, they, it would be administered by a nurse, mm. uh, it would have proven purity, et cetera, et cetera, and you would get support for that whole time. Right. Nobody pre- preached to you, but if you wanted information or you wanted yeah, support, yeah. you could get, get it there. Yeah. And drug abuse and all the problems, AIDS and, you know, all the dirty needles, things, all that, yeah. just crashed, right? right. Yeah. I think all of Portugal is like that now, though, where they're doing the same kind of thing. Yeah, it seems to be successful. We've got a tendency in the UK, I think, to, to give prisoners stuff as if stuff's going to help them. You know, we'll give them facilities and things. I'm sure there's, there's, there's some merit in it, but, you know, we'll give them TVs, we'll give them snooker tables, we'll give them all this kind of stuff that doesn't really solve the problem. Would you? How important is it that we give them your kind of stuff as opposed to physical stuff? Uh, I mean, if you could do either, I'd take it your stuff's better. <laughs> well, well if, uh, if we're asking about food, clothing, and shelter... I would say food, clothing, shelter, and connection. Yeah. They need me- mm-hmm. they need something meaningful. They need meaningful relationships in their lives. So any kind of volunteer program that supports people in some way, right? It just yeah. uh, 
set up a, a fellow traveler program, you know, mm-hmm. so <laughs> people can at least go through it together so they can bond, so they can have some sort of sense of connection, right? That is uh, among the most important things you can do. And and Yara, uh, uh, Hari's book really shows that. Right. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure you're also aware of Gabor Maté's work in the oh, realm yeah. of the Hungry Ghosts, where he demonstrates quite thoroughly something similar to what you're saying, that um, addictive drug-taking behavior is often, well, or always compensating for a lack of connection and promoted by adverse childhood experiences, trauma, abandonment, abuse, neglect. So what kind of challenges do you face teaching the things that you teach to inmates? And how do you teach empathy? So, again, nonviolent communication is, in my view, it's, it's, a, it's a mindfulness skill. It's a... Right. Uh, and... What happens if you ask yourself how you are? This is mindfulness for yourself. This is also empathy for yourself. It's to look inside and to directly experience your present moment right. experience, right? So this is, you know how you are in this moment rather than uh, all the thoughts and things that you're telling you. You can simply notice, yeah, there, here's this thought, there's that thought. It's not to push them away. It's simply to be able to be there with someone. Right. So one of the one of the ways that you can or be there with yourself, and one of the ways you can think about empathy is to fully be present to someone. Right. Yeah. With, without needing to fix it, without needing to intervene, because that wouldn't be uh, that wouldn't be empathy. To fully witness what's going on for another person. Right. Right. With with nothing else that you need to do with, with it. So that sort of curiosity about another person's state of being in the moment okay. lets everyone know that they belong empathy itself carries and i say other people will say fred you know it's uh, implicit it's implied and i'm saying no this is explicit we are wired for this okay. this quality of curiosity says to a person on a fundamental level level you belong you have a place at the table i see your full humanity this is the message that comes into them because of this yeah, can I can I ask as well because we're, we're running short of yeah. time. We'll wind up shortly. Um, you mentioned that you were trying to do a similar program for uh, for guards. What's the success rate there? How is it easier to maybe even um, to do this stuff with prisoners than it is to do it with guards? How reluctant are they, or how keen are they to get involved in this? Well, there, there's a tension. One of them is the story that. Well, you know, if I learn this stuff, well, then I won't, you know, I'll lose my uh, being on guard. I won't be safe. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we constantly assure them that all we're doing is increasing their capacity to be present. Right. Mm -hmm. And their capacity to respond rather than react. Okay. Because you don't want to be walking down a hall and every time anybody comes around a corner, you get activated. Right. You know, uh, martial artists, if you go to a, a, a really good sensei in it and ask, what's the primary capacity a person needs to be able to do this martial art well? Presence is always the answer, right? So you just really, the best thing you can do for yourself for safety is to be absolutely present, right? Okay. And, 
And then the other part is because of the suicides and because of the health issues and all of these things, you know, people dying of heart disease at 40, you're at 46, somebody's kicking, yeah. kicking off or taking their lives, right? That there's a huge, uh, pull on that side, right? To be healthier. Okay. And so while we, uh, the first couple of meetings, uh, we do a day long training for them, a mindfulness based, wellness and resiliency. Uh, and then we do eight two hour sessions with them. As first sessions, there's, there's a little bit of like suspicion and discomfort, but mm-hmm. very quickly people notice that they're calming down. So the things mm-hmm. that are reported first are more sleep. Sleep is essential. You need a good eight hours just to be calm, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, sleeping is there. Blood pressure goes down. Different choices about food uh, um, and exercise start to come to the fore. So people start just sort of turning the ship that's going to run, their personal ship that's heading towards the iceberg, away from the iceberg and into more healthy and positive choices. Right. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's some concern, and, and, and you're entirely right. In many cases, the correctional officers have more anxiety when they first come in uh, than the inmates do. Right, um, yeah. And they're still responding quite positively. Now, with the inmates, I've got a year-long program. I've mm. got a year with mm. those people. And, you know, about a half of people drop out. They, they uh, mm. uh, not, for whatever reason they do so, um, some people just tell themselves that I'm okay, everything's fine, I don't need to do this. And right. then they come back, you know, those the, those things happen over and over again. Okay, right. But, so about, but about half of them stay there and complete, right? Correctional officers, you know, I have an eight hour day and then another 16 hours, you know, eight, two hour sessions. Right. right. So I don't have the same amount of time with them. Right. Uh, and I'm sad about that. I wish I this, that, mm-hmm. uh, had equal opportunity because it would calm everybody. down. Mm-hmm. I imagine 10 years from now, uh, Oregon prisons will be way. The population will be way reduced. Wow. And the correctional. Yeah, it, it, it's such low hanging fruit. Wow. Such a huge possibility for balancing the budget. You don't yeah. need to be doing this. And correctional officers will be making just as not much as not more money being able to support people in the community as, uh, wow. as we bring more of this back into the community and maintain right. the connections. And so yeah. people can, you know, not go through the trauma of being in prison. It's a very traumatic place. You know? yeah. It's an isolation. It's a banishment. And that's mm-hmm. wounding on its own. Okay. And, right. And I mean, if it's that successful as you say in Oregon, then it's not going to be long before other states start turning their heads, at least we hope. But before you go, I'm just interested in hearing what are some of the things that prisoners say about it, the ones that do complete the half, that do complete the program. They sort of uniformly re- report that the fact that we came in there at all that we give our time because nobody's paid. Right. Right. I'm not paid. I'm not paid. I make, I, I teach the public so I can get money so I can go <laughs> support the reservoir. Right. Okay. Right. 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 This is just right. the fact that we come in there tells them that they matter. Right. And that I've had people just stand there crying and saying, it's so amazing and important to me that you people think that I matter. I matter enough for you to use your time and resources to come into this prison. And then they, Across the board, they report how wonderful it is for them to be reconnected to their families. You know, it may be an estranged brother or, you know, uh, be able to see their kids again, those kinds of things. Just, it's such a deeply touching thing for me to hear people, 
expanding their social networks, you know, trusting that they can get back into their social networks because I know that that means peace and their experience of peace they'll take out into their communities when they're released and spread that in their community by just how they are with that capacity to, to sort of understand that this is a different way I can, uh, I can live. Now, does it, does everybody, all our graduates like that? No. Occasionally somebody will go through the, the transition and there's unaddressed trauma there mm, and they'll right. fall again, right? But they never, ever fall as far as they did before. Right. Right. I, there's always something there that's holding on to them. Okay. Well, not to mix my judgments with my observations, Fred, but I think you qualify for sainthood. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Last, oh, boy. Maybe, I'll ask your, maybe ask your wife about that one. I don't know. Or whatever, yeah. <laughs> This is my penance for a misspent youth. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I hear you. Thank you so much for coming on our show. I found it really uplifting and informative. And uh, I'd love to have you back on again at another point, if that's okay with you. Yeah, call me. I'll be glad to do it. Oh, fantastic. Lovely. Thank you again. I have a couple of questions before you go. All right. Yeah. Show sure. parts. Yeah. Sure. Well, once you get this recorded together, can you simply send it to me? Oh, no I'll question. I'll be, be delighted. No question. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to put it up on our Prison Project website. Awesome. So, yeah, I would like to be able to refer people to where you're going to post it, too, so people have a, a chance. Right. To, so, they'll, just, yeah, I'll let you know. There'll be three places that people can get it, maybe four soon. So it's going to be on YouTube. But just as audio with a picture, it's going to be on iTunes. You know, anyone with an iPhone has got an iTunes app. They can just type in your name and it should come up there. It'll be on SoundCloud and hopefully it'll be on Stitcher as well. I was just wondering, and I assume you will be, given your line of work, are you familiar with James Gilligan? Oh, yes, actually. Uh, Gilligan was one of the, uh, that, that study I quoted, 82.6, yeah. he did that study. Right, that wouldn't surprise me because I know that's the focus of his attention. Have you met him before? Have you been in touch with him? No, I have not. I've read his material, but uh, I talked to Sonny Schwartz, who set up the uh, program in San Francisco County Jails. Right. Right. Um, I was thinking of of trying to bring that up here. Mm. uh, And... Oh, well, that hasn't gone off the ground yet. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, but maybe, well, you know, this, there's, uh, as time and resources go, we, we need more resources. You know, we right. need a bigger board of directors and uh, much more cash to be able to. We, we would need to to rent a local prison to set up this sort of 24-7 uh 365. Right. You know, that, that study was only six months. You know, okay. people being in that uh, program for six months was all. There was that 82.6% reduction. Now, it's pretty amazing. Right? Yeah. If people want to donate, how can they do that? Where can they do that? Oh, if you go to the Oregon Prison Project, right? Uh, it's uh, OregonPrisonProject.org. Okay. You'll find a button there that says donate. You know, just Send us money. I run this program on $5,000 a year or Or less. less, That is definitely bang for your buck. Most of it goes into the toner for my colored laser printer, right? Right. That wall starts, right? Right. The the state can find $32,000 per inmate per year, and they can't find $5,000 for you guys. Yeah. Well, I don't ask them. 
No. Because if I start asking the state, then I'm something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I get to make my own uh, own choices, and you know, for five grand, that's a cheap price for that kind of of freedom. If I'm not, it's not that I'm scared about oversight. You know, it's Mm -hmm. I would I am delighted for anybody to come in and uh, take a look at what we do. Right. I don't want anybody to think that they can actually order us to change what we're doing. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. This this would. I'm absolutely, I'm deeply, deeply convinced that what we are doing is effective uh, and having a very positive effect on the people that we offer it to. And the volunteers are among uh, them as well. The volunteers go out of this program being able to go back into their communities and be peacemakers as well. Great. Great stuff. Right. Well, it was a real privilege to be able to talk to you, Fred. I I really have to say I've, I've really, really thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, thank you. I enjoyed connecting with you as well. Uh, and I thought we'd have more skeptics. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, in a way, it's a tribute to your kind of uh, technique because, <laughs> because <laughs> your nonviolent communication, because it was all keyed up to start to have a go, and you kind of, you, your, your, uh, your techniques obviously worked on me. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and, and, and think about how that landed in your body. Do you feel hurt for your concerns? Uh, I, I, I feel absolutely great after this, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So rather than me just telling you you're stupid, which we can go over <laughs> very well, right? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, a, there's a lot of evidence to back up the theory that I'm stupid, you know, so I wouldn't worry too much about that. <laughs> <laughs> I've got good evidence to back up that one, yeah. Yeah, really. Now, if I can only do that with my girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, you guys. Thanks again. Okay. Thanks, Fred. Thank Cheers, you. man. Good night. Okay, bye-bye.